0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Take out your Bibles this morning and turn them to Matthew chapter 27, please. Matthew chapter 27. And then if you have time and you want to, you can also flip over to Romans uh, and just mark the book of Romans uh, beginning in uh, chapter 2. We'll look at various passages there in Romans as well. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Now, I'm going to be reading this entire chapter just for those of you that might be wondering how far we're going to read. I'm going to read through all the way to the end. And as we go through, I. I want to encourage you just to listen. And and if you want to follow along in your Bible, great. But listen as we go through. And just imagine the story unfolding here before you. All right. We read. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, They put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to to bear his cross." When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross, and we will believe Him. He trusted in God, let Him deliver Him now, if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him with the same thing. And now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is crying, or is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the great earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb. "...which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, "'Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, "'After three days I will rise.'" Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the, his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. We've listened to the Word of God as we read through this crucifixion story. I want you guys now to listen to some of the sounds as they would have sounded on that day when Christ was crucified. <laughs> That Marlan, you Mach's We're starting the last week in the life of Jesus Christ. Today's Palm Sunday, the day of his triumphal entry. However, I've chosen to focus this morning, as you can see, on the crucifixion. The reason for that is, is because we don't have a Good Friday service. And I, I, I miss that. I miss the Good Friday service because of its significance. It's a moment, it's an opportunity for the church to reflect on the crucifixion. And so since we don't have a Good Friday service, it doesn't seem to be cultural here. I want to take the time today to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In our family on Good Friday, we try to take some time to sit down with the family and to receive the Lord's Supper together. It's a special day for us as believers. It's a special day for me and my family. And we love to sit down and remember what Jesus has done for us. I would encourage you to do the same thing. But I'll never forget how one year, as we sat down and were taking communion together as a family, my daughter, she was about five years old or so, she asked me a question that caused me to think. She said, Dad, why do we call it Good Friday? Why would we call this day good when Jesus, our Savior, was mocked and spit upon and had his beard pulled out and was nailed to a cross, betrayed by his friend, deserted by all of his disciples? Why would we call this a good day? And I'll never forget that question because it caused me to really begin to think About that name. Why do we call it Good Friday? And this morning, I want to give us just two reasons why we do believe it is a good day, the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. The first reason, if you're following along in your handout, is because that is the day that our sins are forgiven. Our sin is forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. You see, God created mankind and He gave us free will. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God created man and woman in His image. And as God's image bearers, we of all of God's creation are unique in that we have that body, spirit, and soul. The image of God, God's own fingerprint stamped into our being, and 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 as human beings, we know that He gave us that free will because of what the Bible tells us. There in Genesis two fifteen through seventeen, it says that then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, God created man and placed him in paradise, the Garden of Eden. And it was, all of his needs were provided for. He had everything that he needed. And there in that garden, God had also placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told him, He said, Hey, you got all your needs provided for, everything's here for you. Now, all you need to do is go and live your life, be fruitful and multiply. Remember, God blessed him and and gave him the ability to do that. So, man was created with that free will. However, we know that through the fall, when Eve chose to believe the lie and fell into the deception of the serpent, and then also Adam partook of the same deception and human beings fell, the nature fell and became sinful, we know that man continued to have that free will. Because of other passages in the Bible, like Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Notice God's word here. He's speaking directly to Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, God would not ask Cain that question unless Cain had the ability to make a right choice unless he had free will. God goes on and says, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So here we see that unfortunately, although God created us with a free will, after the fall, mankind now shows a tendency to sin. God said, hey, Cain, you have the opportunity here to make a choice. You can choose to do what's right, or you can choose to do what's wrong. But sin is lying at your door. It's lying in wait to ambush you. You need to know that. But you can still choose to do well, and you should. You should actually rule over it. In other words, it's still possible for man to make the right choice, and not every single time give in to sin, But unfortunately, we see that because of the sin nature, because of the fall, humans' tendency is to fall in sin. Let me illustrate that for you very simply. I want to tell you right now not to think about pink elephant. Whatever you do, do not think about a pink elephant. All right, show of hands, who is thinking of a pink elephant right now? A little cute one with big floppy ears. Okay, me too. Now why are we doing that? Well, because I told you not to, right? And that's just a little picture of human will. We like to do exactly that which we are told not to do. And so when God gave us the Ten Commandments, and, and not even just the Ten Commandments, because we're going to see a little bit later on, we know that God's will is also written in our hearts but when we know what we're not to do, well, don't we have an aversion and we're kind of drawn to that? Just like a little kid is drawn to a light socket. Have you ever noticed that phenomenon? You know, we've, we've, we've raised four babies. Another one on the way, but we have raised those four babies in our household and I tell you what, we had to make sure we baby-proofed the light sockets. And I'll tell you why. Every single kid, I don't know what it is. They see those two little dark holes peering at them and they think, what a perfect finger-shaped hole. <laughs> and they, they're drawn to them. So you've got to cover those things. But that's what sin does. That's how our sinful nature is, is now has an aversion to sin or is drawn to sin, has a tendency to sin. Our sin, the Bible tells us, has separated us from God. And must be punished. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. You can flip there in your Bible. It says for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. Man's tendency to sin has been passed on. In the sinful nature from our parents, Adam and Eve, down through every generation, including you. Yes, I'm sorry I didn't break it to you this morning. You have the disease as well the disease of sin. We are all sinners, and our sin has separated us from God's glory. God in His perfection, God in His absolute holiness. We fall short of that standard and the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 22 that in fact according to the law of Moses nearly everything was purified with blood for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness note that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood now in the Old Testament animal sacrifice was used to atone for sin But unfortunately, that was never enough. You see, the blood of animals is an imperfect atonement for the blood of human beings, for the sins of human beings. Animals are just not enough, ultimately, to pay for the sins of the human race. Because of that, God sent His only begotten Son. You know the verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus stepped in. Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. The Bible tells us that The day that Jesus came to be baptized by John, John the Baptist looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes, who takes away the sin of the world. It was a prophecy. John realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, that all the blood of the animals was going to be finally fulfilled in the blood of this man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The Bible says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And get this, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus Christ... Died for the sins of the whole world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, John the Baptist said. John the Apostle seconded that. That word propitiation there in 1 John 2 verse 2 simply means satisfaction. Or appeasement, if you will. So Jesus Christ is the satisfaction... For God's wrath against the sin of the entire world. Jesus Christ's perfect life. He becomes the sacrifice that steps into your place and into my place. And appeases God's wrath. The wrath of a holy God. The just anger of God against your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world. Jesus Christ satisfies God's anger. That is how mercy and truth meet in the cross of Jesus Christ. We call Good Friday good because on that day our sin is forgiven. But not only that, it gets better. Not only is our sin forgiven, but we are also justified justified in the sight of God. Let's go into this again. If you're in Romans, there look at chapter 2, verse 14 and 16 or verse 14 through 16. The Bible tells us that God's law is written in all human hearts, whether you're Jew or Gentile. The Jews having received the law at Mount Sinai, but the Gentiles, what about us? Well, God says Took care of that because I've written it in all man's hearts. It says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing, or else excusing them, and in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. What is this saying? Well, it's saying that God's law is written in your heart. This is one of the reasons we can prove the existence of God, is because there's an objective lawgiver. We know this because every culture. In every place around the world is unified in agreement that there are certain things that are just not right. In other words, there are absolute truths that are absolutely true for all people in all places in all times. Such as murder. There's not one culture in the world that justifies murder or thinks that murder is something good. That's, an, that's, an, that's a clue imprinted upon the human heart from our Creator, an objective lawgiver who gives law in the hearts of all humankind. Inherently, we know what's right and what's wrong. And the Bible says that our conscience either excuses us, hey, I know that I'm doing right here, or it accuses us, hey, I feel bad, I'm doing something wrong. Let me illustrate it this way. I love chocolate cupcakes, with peanut butter frosting and a Pieces buried in the top of that frosting. Especially when the frosting looks like a cloud, just like Kenda Blackshear makes them. Okay, uh, I don't mean to promote her business here, but she does an excellent job of making those things. And when she sometimes brings those by and gifts them to our family, oh man, the temptation is on. Because I want to take all of them and cram them in my mouth at the same time. They're so good. And usually, you know, I'll walk by and I'll go, oh man, those look so good. And I'll hear them calling my name. Phil. Phil. You know you want one. So I'll come back and get one. You know, I'll eat one. And if I stop there, it would be all good. My conscience would excuse me. Phil, you have done your duty. You have eaten one of those cupcakes and saved the rest for your kids and your wife. But you know what happens, don't you? The kids and the wife aren't home. They're not around. And I walk by again, and the cupcakes call my name. Phil, come here. There's more. And so I justify, well, if I just... Half this one, because I know Rebecca won't want the whole one. So I'm going to cut it in half. I'll save her half. I'll eat the other half, right? And my conscience accuses me. Liar. You know that's not true. But I do it anyway, right? I eat that half of that cupcake, and I continue on. My conscience is accusing me. And I go, you know what? I already, finished. I already ate this one. Might as well just finish this one. I mean, you know what? This isn't good for the kids anyways, you know? So it just gets worse, But the whole time I'm doing it, I'm going, oh man, I know I shouldn't be doing this. My conscience accuses. Same is true. You can relate that to sin and temptation. It's God's law written in our hearts. And the Bible tells us that because we are sinners, that all are condemned under the law. Romans chapter 3, look at Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. There in your Bibles, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, guys, all the world is guilty before God. You don't have an excuse. I don't have an excuse. No one has an excuse before God. All are condemned. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is so that you and I will know the wickedness of our own hearts. Because if we didn't have the law, if we didn't have God's perfect standard by which to measure ourselves to, we would go around thinking, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good person. Especially when you compare me to everybody else. And you look at all the good things that I've done in my life. Why I give to this society. And I contribute to that uh, organization. And I'm doing this with my time. And look at what a good person I am. And we would justify ourselves. But God says, I'm not having that. Here's... The perfect standard. Would you like to compare yourself to this? And when we do, we realize, I fall short, Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm not as perfect as I thought. I'm not that good person that I thought that I am. Because I realize I'm just a liar and a thief and an adulterer at heart and an idolater and a blasphemer. And somebody who puts myself in the position of God. And I don't love you with all my heart, Lord. And we realize that we don't love him and we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We fall short. But listen, the good news for us is that Jesus died and was raised for our justification. Check out Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, But now... Whom God set forth as a propitiation, remember that's satisfaction, by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Why is Good Friday good? Because that's the day in which you and I were given the ability to be justified in God's sight. God became the justifier of the one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. Now listen, in the Old Testament we know that when a man committed a sin, He would bring his sin offering to the priest at the tabernacle or the temple. And the priest would take that lamb and would inspect it. And he would make sure as he examined that lamb that there were no defects. There were no broken bones or crooked bones. That there was no uh, patches of different colored hair. That there was no skin disease. He would make sure that that lamb was not blemished. In any way. Once the priest had approved that lamb, then the sinner would place his hand on that lamb's head and would confess his sin. And then that lamb, considered now to be carrying the sin of the sinner. There was a transaction that took place and changing of identity as the sinner leaned in and put his weight on that lamb and confessed his sin over that lamb. There was an identity change in a sense, a transaction that takes place. He identifies with the lamb and the lamb would take the guilt, would take the sin, so to speak, of that sinner. And then that lamb was sacrificed Now my point in telling you this is to remind you that it is never the sinner who is inspected or examined. It was always the lamb. In other words, it was never the sinner that was expected to be perfect there on that day of the sacrifice, but rather it was the lamb who was inspected and examined on behalf of that sinner. The sinner walked away free, forgiven, forgiven. Justified because of his trust in the innocence and the perfection of that lamb. You see, Jesus Christ is our perfect lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away our sin and makes us righteous before God. Why is this such a big deal? Well, because of what it means for us Christians. Because this means that you and I are free. We are free from guilt. The shame can no longer hang upon us. Because Jesus hung on the cross for us in our place. This tells us that the battle that we face on a daily basis against our flesh, it belongs to the Lord. When you feel condemned by sin... You can remember that Jesus Christ is your righteousness. You don't trust in yourself because you are trusting in the perfect Lamb of God who died in your place for your sin. And because of your faith in Him, you are justified. So take joy this morning, my friends, that there is no judgment when you fall in sin. Think of it in this way. As an earthly father, I've watched four of my children learn to walk. And that's quite an experience, isn't it? That first step, such a joyous moment, but also filled with fear and anxiety, right, as a father, as you see that child begin to step out, and it's a precarious step, and you never know if they're going to make it, right? And oftentimes they don't. They fall to the floor. Sometimes they bump their head. Sometimes there's tears involved. There's crying. Well, in the same way, our Heavenly Father walks alongside of us as believers when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we begin to walk in faith, learning to walk. Hey, we fall in sin. We bump our head. We bruise our leg. We bruise our knees. We fall. But is our Heavenly Father looking at us and going, I can't believe you're falling down. Here you are, you already trust in Jesus, you should be walking in perfection. That's not the attitude of our Heavenly Father, is it? I'm an earthly evil father, and I don't feel that way about my kids when they fall. I just celebrate the walk. I celebrate it, I love it when they get back up and they keep trying and they keep moving forward and then pretty soon, they're running all over, right? And you're trying to keep up. And you're going, wow, look at my kids, they're walking. That's the Father's heart. You see, He doesn't come in and condemn when we fall because there's no judgment in our fall. Jesus Christ took God's judgment for us. Jesus Christ dying on the cross took your judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 promises us. But rather there is a sense of celebration and joy from the Father's heart as He watches you step out in faith, trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Not looking to yourself. You're not the one who's expected to be perfect. You're not the one being examined to be perfect. Because Jesus Christ is that for you. So be encouraged. Don't stay down. Get up and keep on going. Keep on running towards your Father. Because He's not mad at you for falling. He knows it's just part of this process of the sanctification of our lives. There's no fear, there's no judgment, there's no condemnation from our Heavenly Father, just this celebration of life as we trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. Today we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table in faith, remembering why Good Friday is so good, It's because our sins are forgiven and because we have been justified before God forever through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.